Hey everybody, my name is Alex and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. So before we get started, thank you so much to everybody who listened to Goat in the Shell. I realize that's cheating a little. Mentioning Goat in the Shell on the internet while talking about anime just it gives you more credibility than it should. It certainly gives me way more credibility than it should. By a lot of fun rewatching the original movie and talking about kind of the series as a whole, but once again, still leaving it open for myself to do more podcasts on that property because it's a big, weird thing, and I probably have more to say about it in other... in its other forms other than the movie, but thanks for listening. So, um, before we get into the show proper, uh, it's, it's, it's story time with Alex is what I'm trying to say. So I went to Smashburger, which for those of you who don't know, is a kind of fast, casual, better than average burger place. Um, it started kind of in New Jersey and grew out. I, I am from New Jersey and still live in New Jersey. Actually, I'm from New York technically, but... I live in New Jersey, and I went to Smashburger for lunch today. And I was sitting in Smashburger, and I had, and like, my anime brain just clicked into gear. And I went, and I said to myself, you know, my hero in academia, my hero academia and Smashburger should, like, do a collaboration where they have the United States of Smash menu, and they have all of all Might's attacks, like Delaware Smash or Arizona Smash, as actual burgers you can order. And as I do with most of my dumb jokes, I manifested it into reality on the internet by making a Instagram post. But the way I use my Instagram is it I post something and it posts to all the other things at once. So... I was watching some late night TV and it and I looked at my Twitter and somebody retweeted it and somebody had liked it and that somebody was Smashburger the actual company so in some small way someone knows about that idea and I would like to take credit earlier here and now of if, if it ever happens which let's be honest there is no God. It will never happen. But I, I, I like, I like to hope, in my tiny nerd heart, in my tiny trash man, my tiny trash man heart, that one day, one day, we will have a video of Kurt Sabat at Smashburger ordering in the voice of All Might, Detroit Smash Burger, um, but. Until then, I just wanted to put it out there. I put it out there somehow. I was called a genius. I was called a genius by somebody, and that's not true. I think anybody listening to this podcast knows that's not true. But we're not here to talk about um, my bad internet humor that takes on weird lives of its own, as all of us does, because it's 2018 and uh, it's 2018. Um, but we are here to talk about a little show that actually popped up on Netflix this week, and I endeavored to watch it so I could talk about it here. Um, and when I started watching it, I wasn't really thinking about talking about it, but the more I watched it, I was like, oh, maybe I'll talk about this show. And that show is Dragon Pilot.
So something interesting has happened in the age of streaming to animation. And that interesting thing is that animation studios are now getting to work on things that they've always, they want to work on. Um, the, and Dragon Pilot is certainly an example of that. The best example of that is actually has very little to do with streaming and more to do with the kind of independence that is rampant because of streaming, um, because of the money provided by streaming. And that is, um, studio, studio, the fact that Studio Trigger has a, has a Patreon that you can, you can go and you can contribute to their Patreon. And that gives them more, like, of, of like a freedom to be able to make exactly what they want. But for most companies who don't have a kind of ultra dedicated fan base, like, uh, infamous studio like Trigger does. They still and Studio Trigger certainly still does this too because, um, how should I put this? Uh, the creative, the cre the creative mind when it's molded into a business suit basically gets more complicated because you have to think about more things. I can tell you as a freelance designer, when I was a freelance designer, instead of doing what I do now, which is more of a full-time thing, I took jobs specifically because I, I gotta put food in my face, yo. So at some point, I gotta make some goddamn money, or else I don't get to put food in my face. And if you are like, or if, if you work for an animation studio... That's also true because, you know, you don't do everything, every little thing you want to do because, yes, you're an artist, but you're an applied artist, basically. You're someone who doesn't, who creates on demand, whose artist is, whose artistry has been turned into a utility. And part of that is very bad and very soul-crushing. But it's the way the world works, and people, more and more people, have gotten into this that kind of content, quote unquote, creation for the reason that they saw something they loved, and that they wanted to create stuff at that studio, and then at some point they have the realization of, like, oh, this is what it really means to be an animator. I always knew that when I was training for animation, and I made this decision that was actually, if I'm honest, financially motivated to go into design, and I made, I made better money in design than I probably wouldn't have made in animation. But that's a whole different story. What I'm trying to say is that the mass of money that is Netflix that is bumping around the internet and bumping in all these people who are creative people and giving them money to create things is giving them a kind of freedom to make kind of whatever they want. I mean, if you look at um, Orange is the New Black, um, I think that's made by Benji, Co that the creation of Benji Cohen. She made a show, she made a show called Weeds that was phenomenal. But uh, Weeds was on Showtime, and it did very well on Showtime. But that's a huge risk. The art of making a t of writing and directing a TV show is a huge risk for any studio to undertake. So when a studio says, here's a bunch of money, make whatever the hell you want, uh, most times... A creator who knows the business a little bit will say, holy shit, yes, I will take your money. You're probably an idiot, but I will take your money. And lately, what Netflix has been doing, because their business model is, they don't care if there's, they don't care if they have the trashiest garbage on Netflix. They just care that you have 
that you find something to watch ultimately. And what that translates into is it translates into trying to service niche markets because the uh, is Hulu let me offer this up as an example. Hulu is a great streaming service but Crunchyroll has a fan base. What I mean by that is that Crunchyroll is does its best love them or hate them to make itself part of anime of especially American otaku culture. It fun, it has conventions, it funds events, all that other stuff. You can you can go and buy anime figures from off Crunchyroll store. Uh, it does its best to slot itself into the American otaku's lifestyle. And it does a really good job at that. But something like Hulu can't do that. Because Hulu needs to be everything for everyone. Because it wants to reach the most eyeballs, not the right eyeballs. But the way Netflix has decided to go about it is kind of a marriage of, say, Hulu and Crunchyroll, for lack of a better thing. It has decided that it's going to create niche content for every niche it can. And with Netflix's, like, big fat wallet, it can do that. So it can go to a prominent Japanese studio like Bones, the creator of the show show we're talking about today, Dragon Pilot, and it can say, here's this money. Make whatever the hell you've been keeping in a drawer because you have a great track record of creating really, really good shows. Shows that people will watch and shows that people will respond to. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with some Bones shows, a couple are Elreka 7. Um, I did a show on that on this podcast that is actually a very popular episode, which warms my heart because that weird damn universe of a show, it speaks to me in a way that I still, that I still appreciate. But it, they also made Soul Eater. Um, they made, uh, they made the, they are the people who animated the Cowboy Bebop movie, Knocking on Heaven's Door. Um, they, they make, my Hero Academia, the which is responsible for the dumb joke in the opening of this episode. But, if you look at what they're making, maybe with the exception of Eureka 7, but even Eureka 7, they make these highly polished, beautiful things that will sell. And they have really detailed animation, and they've have a track record of working with these big properties ranging from things like shonen battle stuff like My Hero Academia and like Soul Eater to stuff that is very clearly in search of a big audience like Eureka 7 or or things that are infamous like Cowboy Bebop. They have a huge range and they've done a good job of Paying the bill of paying the bills with that huge range, and by putting out really impressive, beautiful animation for all of those properties, and keep and keeping it up, and that's a huge deal because oftentimes um, it's hard to keep it up. Lots of people love that love the show Kill a Kill, which I've also done an episode on in this very podcast, but they pointed the animation for the second, kind of the second half of that show as being really limited. And not to knock Trigger because I don't want half the internet coming after me, but that is something that they could have learned from Gynax, who ran out of money on the second half of, on the last episode of Ava and did the entire thing in, like, colored pencil boards in a weird-ass way. Because they just they didn't have enough money to like make it go, 
and that's why why End of Ava came later and is like its own thing disconnected from the series. But what I'm trying to get at is that animation is expensive, and you don't need Shiro Bako to tell you this. If you're curious as to why it costs so much to draw a bunch of drawings and put them together and, like, stick them in your computer and open up iMovie, that's not really how it works. Um, And the best way I can demonstrate that to you is if you go and you take a piece of paper and you try and draw a a character the same once. Just once. And if you can't get there, that's fine. But imagine you have to draw that character dozens of times. Ultimately, hundreds of times. To give you an idea of how many cells are in a typical movie, a typical animated movie, um, Prince Monoki, I believe, was around... 4,400 cells. I mean, 4,400 cells. That means that there were four over 4,000 drawings to Princess Monoki. And that's just the drawings. We're not talking about coloring them. We're not talking about VO or voice act, voiceover or voice acting. We're not talking about the instrumental track. We're not talking about any of that. We're only talking about the actual drawings that were done for that movie. That is an enormous amount of work for anybody. And if you've seen Prince Monoki, you know exactly how much work they put in. Now, that is probably a higher cost per minute. But generally, as a rule, according to Shiro Bako, because... The universe has decided that Shirobako is the authority on this, and they're uh, kind of right. But as a general rule, a minute of animation can cost as much as $10,000. I think that's the metric. So let's look at something that's like, say, 22 minutes. That is $22,000. That's about $22,000. Or two, two, probably $222,000. And you, you multiply that over, let's say, 12 episodes, which is the size of Dragon Pilot. And that gets, that gets really expensive really quickly. And once again, that's, that, that's just the guesstimate, but it's probably pretty close. So when a... My point here is, is when a company like Netflix comes to you and says, we'll bankroll this, you just say fucking yes. Because you, as a company that produces shows, knows how much that costs. And knows how much it costs to employ people who can do that at the drop of a hat. Because working, if if you're listening to this and you draw and you're like, I would love to be an animator, I would love to be a cartoonist, I would love to be a mangaka, A, don't ever be a mangaka. Just don't. They don't sleep. They don't eat. They're just like weird nightmare humans that just pump, that pump out 20 pages a week on command like golden Labrador retrievers. Um, but it, Working in art is, you don't have the, means that you don't have the option of turning it on and off. You don't have the option of not feeling it and having to just like walk around until the moment hits you. Like, okay, I know how to draw that dog now. No, you need to either figure out how to draw that dog or get the fuck out because there's no in between. And yes, you can struggle a little, but ultimately it needs to happen. The um the best illustration of this is actually in Shirobako. That I see at least is actually in Shirobako when one of the characters having issues drawing cats and she can't get it to feel quite right. And the her senior says, you know, there's a stray cat that hangs out of the park on your way home. Why don't you feed it, watch it, hang out with it? 
figure it out because you have to figure it out. And it's it's very clear that she has to figure it out. And she does. And so it's not a big deal. But that gives you an idea of art becomes a very, your art if you draw or if you any kind of art you create, there are lots of kinds, becomes a different thing once you you take a basically you take a lengthy commission, a lengthy permanent commission. Because you are now required to produce something for someone else or else you don't get paid or else you don't have a job. So what so to keep to employ people like that costs it costs money. It just costs money because they they don't at that point they don't have a talent. They don't they may have talent and they may have experience, but primarily they have a skill that you use that you need and will use. So when someone offered to bankroll that for any period of time, of course you're gonna say yes, because that means that that month that, that however long it takes to make that show is paid. And then you are automatically you're starting at you're starting in the black and then you can go up to being in the green in terms of a business sense. So especially when and that is especially true when Netflix says, take this money, make what you want. Make us something that you wanna make because you're good at making stuff and we think you'd be good at making something you wanna make too. And what they what Studio Bones decided to make is really a decidedly unbones like thing, and that's really unique. Um, because whereas other Studio Bones work are pretty high energy and pretty shonen esque in their delivery, even something like Elreka Seven has really sh- has a shonen anime quality to it. Is Dragon Pilot is kind of nothing like that. It is it, it's meandery. It's bright. It's it's as it's, it's bright while being at the same time kind of pastel in its color palettes. Its characters have a much more almost Kyoani vibe, almost like Kyoani Moe esque vibe to them than you would expect. Its characters aren't are extremely expressive and have a lot of like squashy feel squash and stretchy feeling to them in a way that is much more akin to traditional animation than to traditional American or French animation, I should say, than lots of anime is. There are, I'm sure there are cells of this show that look like total nonsense because the, the, the show is meant to be taken as a whole and the keyframes fit, but not necessarily the overall of it, if that makes any sense. And that, that's true of things like Bugs Bunny. If you see any, if you see certain key cells of Bugs Bunny, it's just like someone put some color on the cell and smeared their hand across it, because there's so much squash and stretch and blur to create that second of motion that that cell represents. Um, but Dragon Pilot is it's a unique show for a bunch of reasons. It, it Really, it harkens back almost to a show, funnily enough, like Eureka 7, and that's probably part of the reason why I was so fond of this show, in that it, it starts pretty abruptly, and it introduces you to a whole host, a whole host of things, but it's aware, it's aware of what it's doing, and it's aware of what it's setting up, so... Um, at this point, I'm going to get into the plot a little, so if you are in, saw this show or starting to watch the show and you're interested in still watching it, maybe just pause the episode and come back once you've seen more of it or once you feel like, I, I don't care about this show or about getting spoilers, 
spoil, spoiled on this because I'm going to watch it anyway or whatever. Um, or even after you watch the whole show, you can do that. But basically, you meet this girl named, I think her name is uh, Hitsune. Um, and the, the subtitle of the show, which I'll get into now, is called Hitsune and Masatan. So it's Dragon Pilot Hitsune and Masatan. And Hitsune is this, kind of this kind of laissez-faire. You get the sense that she's kind of aimless recruit for the JSDF, or Japanese self, Self-Defense Force. And she's kind of a dense, she's kind of a dunce, she's kind of uh, spacey, if that makes any sense. She doesn't know what she doesn't know what she wants to do but she doesn't know what she doesn't want to do she's just kind of drifting and she kind of drifts without thinking about it because she's on her phone um on her flip phone we should we should mention um into a into a normal airport hangar where she is then Scared to death by a big, by a big, long-necked, like, um, what's that Irish folktale, um, Loch Ness monster-looking thing with big red saucer eyes, and she's like, oh, fuck, passes out. Wakes up in the hospital to her superior officer, to her commanding officer and her superior officer being like, okay, look, there's these things called organic transform flyers. Or we call them an OT, we call them OTFs. We have sought to live in harmony with them because they are very fucking bad and they can kill us. So we live in harmony with them and use them, and we've used them for generations. Basically, what I'm saying is, you saw a dragon is what he says more or less, and she's just kind of not listening. She in her in her head. She's also she's all like, nope, 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 not fucking with that. And push comes to shove, she ends up as the pilot of this dragon, hence the name Dragon Pilot. And she, but here's where the show sets her kind of apart: is before she agrees to be a dragon pilot. She tried to back out, and her superior officer's like, why wouldn't you have voiced your opinion sooner? And she says, and I shit you not, she basically says, I did, over and over and over again. I told you, I don't want to do this. I'm out. No. She, she, She said no multiple times, and the show shows you her being like, no, uh-uh, nope, get the, I'm fucking done, and the show, and they're all like, well, too late, you're Dragon Pilot now, she's like, oh, fuck, and it, what that sets up, is it sets up something that ultimately played, comes into play later in the show, is that everyone has this idea, in this, this show, Everyone in this show, aside from Hitsune, is motivated by what they're supposed to be doing. They're they're not motivated by what they want to do or what they don't want to do. They're motivated by their duty, because that's the way the military is. And later on, you meet this guy who's basically the master of ceremonies for this ceremony in which... They get a get a Shinto priest together, get a bunch of Shinto shrine ma- maidens together, guide a giant floating rock dragon to its like to its next resting place in Japan, and then you know casually sacrifice one of these shrine maidens, at, where she will be killed. As a ritual sacrifice 
to this giant asshole dragon. Uh, now, I, I said, if you don't want to have this spoiled for you, listen to it after you've watched the show. But that's the whole deeper plot of this show. But what they also say is that the pilots are not necessarily treated chosen because they can be the best pilots. They And they are trained into that. They are chosen because they are unsure of themselves. They are drifters. And the reason why they need to be drifters is because the dragons are assholes and are, are like asshole pets who are easily jealous and demand total, like, these girls' total hearts. And you... You see four variations of this. You see this, like, mo- lovingly, like, motherly character that who's also a dragon pilot. You see this kind of, like, reserved, almost stocking-esque from Panty and Stocking, almost stocking-esque, manga-obsessed, like, weirdo of a character, and she's a dragon pilot. And then you meet this girl named Hoshino, who wanted nothing more than to be a fighter pilot, but ends up being what she describes as a zookeeper for OTFs, which means that she feels like she's running a zoo because she has to keep an eye on her dragon, who, in order to please her, please her, never tries his best to never leave his plane form because the plane form is what she wants out of him, out of her dragon, not what, not him as a living, breathing thing. But even even after that point, none of them question their fitness to their the requirement to fly. That if they fall in love with someone else, then they're screwed. And we see we see that happen in this show when. Hisone and Hoshino, who eventually opens her heart to a dragon, blah, 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 fall in love with two characters on the base, and their dragons reject them. Now, a lesser show would say, okay, a lesser show would make those characters say, okay, I need to put all of this out of my skull or, or so, like, my feelings for this for this person I deeply care about need to be pushed aside, pushed away, sacrificed for the greater good. And this show does do that with one of the characters. Um, the love interest for Hoshino basically breaks up with her so she can so specifically... For the good of the mission, because he is told that is his duty as a JSDF soldier, and initially he resists it, but he does it anyway. But Hisone, before the opportunity can be afforded to her love interest, who also happens to be the Shinto priest, who is working, who is taking care of the dragon for the entire time, before any of that gets to happen to her, she quits. And she says something very interesting. She says, you know, I I really care about everyone, and I, but I, I don't want to put everybody in danger. But I can't be of use otherwise, so I'm quitting. And her superior officer gets pissed off with her for a... for rightfully for running away and but she doesn't see it that way and she tries to explain herself and she basically goes to live as a jobless weirdo with her family with her parents and her cat um because she lived on base but the the interesting thing about the show is that it shows it both ways and then it very clearly says who's right. Now, 
there's lots of rules about life that we all are told, like, you know, you have to do this, you have to do this, that's just the way this is, that's just the way that is. Um, but just because it's the way some the way something is done does not mean that it is the right way. Does not mean that it is the only way to accomplish the goal. And this, this show starts out as being this kind of like light, fun, romp, weird little thing, but then over the course of 12 episodes, very quickly and very skillfully, shows you what it's really doing and what it's really about. And it's about the... It's about the acceptance of rituals that are bad for the sake of the fact that they are rituals. And another show that did this very that uh, that did this really well is actually Elreka Seven. And if I had to give you two example, give you an example of what this show is, I would say it's like Elreka Seven. Mixed with How to Train Your Dragon. And uh, in Eureka 7, basically, there's this chosen path Renshin and Eureka are supposed to go on. And eventually they're going, 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 and they're doing all the right things. And then they diverge, and it diverges. And the path changes in a way that is unpredictable but real and you realize and all the characters around them realize fuck we've been but basically Elreka 7 at some point all the adult characters come to re, come to realize they are shitbags who are essentially sacrificing two children either emotionally or in whole to for the greater good and they are okay with that because it is supposed to be for the greater good. And um, in Matthew Holland's case, his solution to that is, if I'm the sacrifice, nobody else needs to get hurt. But that doesn't end up being happening. In Elreka's case, she resigns herself to what, will ultimately happen to her. But you get little hints along the way. Slowly at first, but then at a runner's pace, that it doesn't, A, it doesn't need to be this way, and C, the way that they've been doing it for that long, for the way that they attempted to do it that time, didn't work out so hot. And it kind of never worked out so hot for anybody. So, uh, when push comes to shove, it becomes a good thing that Elreka and Renshin follow their hearts instead of the instruction manual. And that's ultimately what Hisone does with Masotan, her dragon. And it it all works out. It, it, it all... It all wraps up and everyone is better for it and the world of the show is changed because it, it, it is not just alluded to but it's explained that Masatan, who is the dragon in this show, who is Hitsune's dragon, Masatan's previous owner had an affair with Hitsune's senior officer's boyfriend and fell in love with him, got married to him, and had children with him. But after she fell in love with a guy, she was no longer able to pilot Masatan, so she quit before anybody, like, found out. And everybody just assumed, like, oh, she just gave him up for this guy, but she didn't. She she loved Masotan 
in the way that <laughs> this will make sense if you've seen the show or, or if you watch the show, in the way that a person loves their dog. It's an unconditional love, but it's different than when you love a person. It's different even than when you love your friend. Because you understand that they are a pet. And that there are boundaries to the universe. And... Uh, but... The dragon, as oftentimes pets do... Doesn't accept that right away. They don't accept that, like, oh... My person can love other people, and I, I still get to be loved. So it said, "Nope, uh, uh-uh, uh, not, not gonna let you ride me, not gonna let you pilot me." But, and so that kind of selfish whim of a dragon was indulged in the same way. That the selfish whim of these assholes, rock dragon, that they have to like pick up. They basically have to pick it up, carry it cross, carry it cross country, and drop it off and sing it a lullaby, and give it a mini. But in addition to giving it a snack of a human person, of a human teenage girl, and that was and that's never questioned because that's just the way it's always been done. No one's ever stopped and been like, is this fucked up? Are we just throwing young girls into a giant dragon people disposal? Ever, like, once every bunch of decades? Is this fucked up? And what this show does is it says, hey, you, like, you should feel bad about this. And if you don't, here's why you should. And it demonstrates that the pre- and it dem- demonstrates that by showing you the previous pilot who you're introduced as this weird, old, very anime, non-sequitur lady who just offers all the characters yogurt whenever they have feelings? Which is just the weirdest and very good. But you realize that she she is the former, what they call the white lover, which basically means true dragon pilot, who participated in the ceremony. And she has what she calls sweetheart. But really, she's a, le- she's a lesbian. She was in love with, one, with the shrine maiden who got sacrificed. And the show... Puts a, puts a bow on that concept by having her actually pilot Masatan for a, for the ceremony for a second time just so she can go see, she can go stay with and be with her true love. And it, it, it's a moment where you realize how crushing, and you, they gave you, they gave you big, this still gives you big hints about what's coming once, once you are introduced to the deeper concept of the show, which I explained a little earlier, it's like, okay, there's a shrine maiden who's chosen, they have a very important job, They will be the the important one, also known as the dragon is going to eat them somehow. Um, but so the show points this out and points this out and points this out, and then it tells you the old what they call the old yakult because that's what she gives people. It's a weird. Japanese yogurt drink thing. I had it one time in high school. Not great. Not a fan. Um, it's they with the old Yakult ladies storyline. They say like, this is what happened to the last priestess that was chosen. She dead now. Yakult lady very sad. 
Yakult lady wanted nothing more than to run away with this, with, with her sweetheart. Only the thing that stopped that was, and it turned out to be not very important, ritual. And this is a difficult thing to broach in uh, in the universe because everybody has rituals. Everybody's rituals that they truly believe helps them. I mean, hell, I record a podcast and release it every every week. That's that's ritual. Now, in my case, it's a, it's a positive one, because I'm creating something and putting it out in the world, and I'm expressing my feelings and all of that. But it, there are lots of rituals that are pointless. And, uh, but because, they're, because at some point someone ascribed meaning to them, and others repeated it wholeheartedly believing in that meaning eventually it spirals out of control. And it, it it ends up harming... It can end up harming people. Rituals can obviously be bad. I mean, there's ritualistic suicide. There's, a, there's cult rituals, which are also usually suicide. Um, you can look at something like uh, Om Shinrikyo, and see how the use of rituals and all that stuff, or Scientology, can be used as a bad in the world. But the thing is, is when you're not... When you're told not to question it, but you're also not told all the parts of the ritual, and this happens to those girls, what happens is you're... Common sense can butt up against what is happening in front of you. And in Hitsune's case and in all of the Dragon Maid in all of the Dragon Pilot's case, they realize like, oh fuck! We were told that somebody had to die for this thing. We thought we were just like throwing a lullaby party that was transcontinental and inside of a giant rock dragon. We didn't know that one of us was chosen to be a midnight snack. That's fucked up. I hate this. And then, he, but the thing with Sisona is, she then does something about it. The others are paralyzed by the by the potential consequences and risk of, you know, letting a giant rock dragon fly off course and maybe burn Japan to the ground. But Hisone recognizes that, no, this is fucked up. I'm not letting this happen, but I'm also not going to die, because that's my choice, motherfucker. And she just does something about it. And this, As someone who has existed in a world where everything they were told, this is how it's going to be, was always questionable. I don't mean like that, like, it was always in doubt, but I mean, I, I was raised to always ask questions of people. And it became clear that I should always ask questions of people who are extremely sure that they are doing whatever they should be doing because it's the right thing, because, and I've, mentioned this enough times on this podcast, as a true plurality of a human, meaning I am multiple things, and by that I mean disabled, half-black, raised by a single mother, blah, 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 blah. I, what it, what is right for all is not necessarily always right for me. So, uh, to give you an example, I, when I was learning Spanish, I got a worksheet. I did not understand the fucking worksheet for the life of me. I just, I couldn't. I couldn't. My brain couldn't. And I, I was in, like, I think sophomore year of high school, 
I brought it back to my mom, and I was like, I, I don't get this. What the fuck? And she turned, she took one look at it, turned it over, redrew it in a totally different way. I totally understood it. Which means that, for me, this worksheet that that teacher probably handed out like clockwork on the third class of every semester she'd ever taught Spanish, and everyone had ever done it, but never done it quite well, had engaged in a ritual that didn't actually work, and ultimately caused some problems. Now, not big problems, but problems. And by diverting from it, there was a solution. And that's that's a really important thing. And it's really important that uh, we not forget that the reason that we ritualize things is because we care about them. And if we stop caring about them, but keep going through the motions of the ritual, what's the point of the ritual? And I'm not saying, like, you don't have to brush your teeth every day. That, that ritual is important because it has an important purpose that keeps you your teeth from falling out of your skull. That's a different thing. I'm saying, if you go and you do something every week, like let's say you meet up with your friends and hang out and have a candy bar every week after school, but it come, there comes a time at which you've all had a fight and you all, like, none of you, all of you have drifted apart and you still show up, but none of your friends do. Why are you still showing up? Now, yeah, you hope that your friends will, like, show up and say hi and you'll get a candy bar and you'll hang out and be like old times, but it, it never will again. And that, that, that's, I mean, that's astoundingly sad and probably the, and I think, ripped straight from some anime that I've seen, I'm sure, but that you could keep doing that ritual and hope that they show up or you could go to them and meet them and you could say like, hey, you may not want to go get a candy bar anymore, but we could still do something. It doesn't have to be that. It, I, what this show is trying to say at its core is don't let tradition come at the cost of, of happiness. And also buck the trend of just because it's always been. And also don't humanize your pets weirdly. I mean that that that's a very clear like it's very clear that, like, oh, the dogs are running the kennel. That's why everybody sucks at this. <laughs> and it, 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 I'm talking, of course, about, like, the, all of the JSDF people being absolutely deferential to the dragon's preferences instead of being like, no, your pilot's allowed to go on dates. You're being a dick. Stop it. The same way you say to your dog, or I say to my dog, when they pull you too much on a walk, you're like, no, stop it. Don't just let them pull you. They're the dog. You're the person. That's how it works. They're a dragon. You're a 20-something young woman. She loves you, but she likes dudes. Let her like dudes. She'll still love you. She can love both. She can love all of it. And that's really, that's actually what Masatan decides. And she's like, um, that's actually what Hitsune decides. She's like, I love Masatan. I love, I think his name is Onyoki. Or, or Onyoki. I love both of them. I love all my friends too. I can love them all. I don't need to make a choice. Stop making me make a choice. And by doing that, she finds a way uh, to accomplish everything. 
and come out on the other end a better person. And what... What I think this show also says, and this is probably my last thought since we're nearing the kind of traditional hour, <laughs> traditional, in this episode of all things, is I is that people who don't have a goal in mind are valuable. And what I mean by that is Hitsune comes into the show a really malleable kind of like, as I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, drifter almost. She's kind of just drifting through life. She doesn't really know what she wants to do. But by the end of the show, she knows exactly what she wants and she knows exactly what she's going to do to get it. And if anyone stands in the way of that, they are wrong. Now, it's not great to be hard-headed but it is like that. But it is important because she comes to a very real understanding that everything everybody's telling her is in service of this ultimate goal. And no one's ever said, this is the only way you can do it. So because she is... unhinged from all of that, she's just kind of floating through it, she can look at it differently and she can say, okay, if this needs to change, so let's change it. This needs to change, so let's change it. And that that is a very real perception of the value of detachment from a from a solution like so give you an idea um in graphic design uh, there's lots of throwing around of like creative muscle and weight and people are and people have this kind of cult of the creative in, gra- in graphic design and in lots of creative fields and the and you know the most creative idea wins and blah 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 blah, but what and that's because that's what taught to you in school is like they te- they teach into you that you need to be insanely creative and insanely talented to be successful as a designer to win awards and all the like traditional markers of success in like a in any field. But when I one of my first jobs when I was out of and you'll never I will never show this thing because it is really bad looking was a logo for a client. And I made something that they loved and I hated. And it was it was and probably still is very bad. But the client loved it. The, the the client absolutely loved it. So I just kind of backed off and I was like, okay. It's it's what the client wants, so it's it's a success. I'll take the win. Now I I, I showed it later to I showed it at the time to a designer to an old designer friend of mine and he took one look at it and he goes, Oh man you're a better man than me. I couldn't. I couldn't do that, no matter how much money they paid. And I looked at him. And I said, "Dude, it's what the client wants. That means it's a good design. Just because you know it, it's ugly, doesn't mean that it's a, not a good design." And this also loops back into the idea of the of what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast with animation and how animation works. All all of those people, all animators, probably have, when it comes to their own drawings, have a different, a totally different style, a totally different feel, a unique feel that is probably separate from their animation work. 
and they separate them because they are they they are they are invested in the fact that the project succeed but they are not but they do not think of themselves as self-important enough to attempt to wholly constantly influence it and when you have a religious ritual usually you have someone who thinks of themselves as in this show's case a master of ceremonies and that person has this has a great deal of self-importance and believes that they are integral to making this thing happen and they are functioning from usually an instruction book but Hisone the main character who is the hero of the show, throws that instruction book out, just throws it to the wind and says, no, we're doing it this way. And the closest thing, and in the show, the closest thing you could have to a real villain of the show is the Masters of, the Master of Ceremonies character. He is like, he's as conniving as he can be without being a complete evil asshole. And he does things like he lies to them, he leaves out truths, he's the one who decides not to tell them that there will be a sacrifice. Because he knows, because he knows that that is, that will bump up, that reality will bump up against their logic and they'll be like, fuck no, this dragon could burn down the planet. We don't care. We're not sacrificing a human. We're not. We won't have that blood in our hands. And it, the other thing, the other thing about him is that he is wholly deferential to this jot to the dragons and the giant, especially the giant asshole rock dragon, and who, who they gotta like pick up and move. And from minute from minute go of him showing up on the show, they paint him in a bad light. They paint him as this like underhanded, fiendish weirdo who you're not supposed to like. Who's supposed to be a disreputable, like smarmy, snooty, like ritzy asshole. And the reason they do that is because he is, and. He is deferential to the dragons, and he, you know, says, like, the dragons are beautiful, blah, 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 blah. He talks in the same way that cult leaders often talk. But, um... But... After Hitsune forces it all to happen, he breaks out of himself... Even he breaks out of himself and says, okay, let's get this thing done, because now it's halfway over and we need to get it done. So that, and after that, when next time you encounter his character, he is not completely humble, but he is much more humble, and he is humbled by the Yakult lady, ultimately. And it's just, the whole show is this interesting meditation, as was Elreka 7, on the importance of tradition and what and what tradition should do versus what oftentimes mankind allows tradition to do and become. But on that note, if you like the tradition of listening to my podcast, you can do so on every Thursday, usually. And I thank you for putting down Dragalia Lost for long enough to listen to me today. Um, <laughs> but um, I have been Alex, and you've listened to Lunchbox Radio. And if you would like to express your feelings about Lunchbox Radio, you can do so by leaving a rating, five-star rating, on any po- on any of the podcast platforms that of which you choose, since I'm on all of them. If you want to maybe support my craziness, if you want to maybe buy into this ritual, so to speak, you can um, click the link in the description of this podcast and it will take you to a place where you can do so 
for no less than about a dollar a month. Um, but if you don't, that's okay too. I'll be here next week regardless, but I will also be visiting my best friend Lauren next week, so that'll be a lot of fun. I'll have left probably by the time you hear that that week's episode. But, um... In the meantime, I've been Alex, and I'll talk to you next time.